over the years, I've seen more of some of the silliness, but also more of some of the relevance as computer technology is sort of coming more and more online. All decks, prepare for hyperdrive. Activate tractor beam. Disengage tractor beam. Right, we're ready for light speed. No, 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 light speed is too slow. All right, reality check. The science of fiction. All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode. Today we have with us Noah Healy, and he is a marketing designer and game theorist who is working on better economic systems. After training in nuclear engineering, Oppenheimer anyone, he worked for tech startups at the peak of the dot-com boom. Before becoming fascinated by the mathematics of information and computation, it led to his work in patent design on better commodity market design. So Noah, welcome to the show. I'm so glad to have you here. So let's uh, let's talk real quick about the movie War Games, which was a you know 1980s sci-fi that at the time was you know way way ahead of its time in the future, and now we're here in the era of ChatGPT. You know the Oppenheimer movie just came out; it's really popular. So I just kind of want to hear some of your initial thoughts both from when you kind of first saw the movie to to where we're at now. Uh, sure, Heidi. So when I first saw the movie as a kid, uh, and so just in the theater, uh, I I quite liked it back in the day. Um, and I didn't really, I think, have a, a super strong attachment to it. Unlike some of the 80s franchises, it didn't sort of inspire a toy line. Uh, but I, I wasn't a breakfast club kid. So I remember Ellie Sheedy from war games and short circuit, uh, not her rat pack work or, or Brad pack work, I guess, uh, over the years, um, I've seen more of some of the silliness, uh, but also more of some of the relevance, uh, as, as computer technology is sort of coming more and more online. Uh, but that was something that, as, as you know, in my background, I came to kind of late. Uh, I was, I was always been strongly interested in mathematics, not always been strongly interested in computers. So I was about 25 before I started finding out about, uh, some of the deeper parts of discrete mathematics and then sort of coming back around the the whopper is is sort of both silly and prescient at the same time um it's silly because the technology that they actually had is entirely insufficient to to purpose it's prescient because the way that they're using that technology is essentially been validated uh for our current spate of super game engines that have largely conquered uh chess and and checkers and go and poker and just about any other game we decide to, to point them at. So that, um, this is going to be one of my big questions. Cause you are, you know, uh, you're, you're a game theorist. What exactly is that? I, I get this a lot and it's an interesting thing in my opinion, game theory is probably the most flippantly named thing in human history. Uh, game theory is the mathematics of strategy. Uh, so it was developed by a number of people, but 
one of the earliest and largest contributors was John von Neumann, um, which Oppenheimer, uh, he was a, a major part of the Los Alamos effort. He was one of the primary movers behind the implosive explosive design for the plutonium bomb. Uh, incredibly smart person, very fast mind. Uh, and one of the the key figures in the design of computers in the first place. In fact, we call the architectural design of modern computers von Neumann architecture, uh, because while there have been considerable advances in the chemistry and physics, uh, and also some meaningful advances in in layouts and design and so on, the core concept of central processor and information buses and so on were all developed by him as the most practical way to design computers. That's really fascinating. And I, I didn't know any of that. So it sounds like game theory, because when you think of that, it, it sounds almost like more like things like chess and, you know, games, but game theory, it sounds like is definitely more used for military strategy. Uh, well, it is it is somewhat both. It's rather intriguing. Um, game theory was actually heavily developed in the 20th century by think tanks like the Rand Corporation. Uh, in fact, I've got a book over there that they published on the subject. Um, in order to manage nuclear strategy. So large amounts of the fundamental theories of game theory are classified information to this day. They're referred to as the folk theorems um, because while everybody knows that they're true and they're fairly obvious, uh, the actual proof publications are national secrets. And so those papers are not available online to go look at. You can look at declarations of the truth of them and you can work it out yourself without too much trouble now, now you're saying the truth of them is that just the you know kind of you know spoiler alert if you haven't seen this movie it came out in the 80s so sorry if you haven't seen it by now but it's kind of that that hey it's there's not going to be a winner <laughs> if uh, a global <laughs> global warfare well that that gets into essentially the model that wound up being used so the decision about how to cope with uh, the reality of nuclear bombs, particularly the reality of hydrogen bombs and, and how much destructive capacity they had, uh, was to use a rather simple model of chicken. So chicken is a game where either player can choose to try to win. And if the other player chooses to also try to win when you do, you both lose hard. Um, if only one player decides to try to win, then they win and the other player loses, but both players can choose to lose. Uh, so in a, in a game of chicken, the ideal strategy that you should employ, how often you should try to win, how often you should just choose to lose is dictated by how bad the result is for you if you both choose to win. And this is where the the buildup, the nuclear buildup strategy, uh, which was much criticized in the 80s, actually comes from. The idea was that by making mutually assured destruction as bad as possible, the two major powers would become less aggressive because trying to push their luck uh, 
might cause a cascading incident where they simply, you know, c committed mutual genocide. Uh, right. Nobody would exist anymore. Now, have those, you know, since it's, you know, it's classified information, but it seems like some of these strategies are somewhat obvious to people as other countries step into the capacity, nuclear capacity, does that change the strategies for everybody? Oh, it definitely does. Um, so again, think about, think about a game of chicken. So if you're familiar with, you know, like fifties car movies or something, um, you know, the, the, the two Fast people driving one through 40. <laughs> sure. Right. So the two people driving each other and either one can choose to swerve. If, if they swerve, then they lose. If they both swerve, it's a double loss, which is still embarrassing, but you know, you didn't get killed. If they both choose not to swerve, then, you know, they both die. Mm -hmm. Imagine this scenario as more and more cars are driving towards a convergent point. So every new player makes it more dangerous to try to win because all it takes is one other coincident person deciding to win to kill you. Uh, so as nuclear proliferation spreads out, the, the sense of aggression goes down considerably. Now, the difficulty with that is that human beings have a certain amount of aggression pretty intrinsically and not all of us can sublimate those those urges in the gym and a lot of those people wind up running things like national governments so if there's a uneradicable lower limit of aggressive intent then the more and more players you have in a chicken scenario the more and more certain you are to reach a double chicken outcome um, and and that's sort of bad for everybody. And that's where the the computer during the final scenarios, if you might recall, uh, there are a number of regional expansional conflicts and other things that come up if you sort of go frame by frame or you've got really quick eyes, um, that everything leads to the, the general dropping off outcome. And so in that case... Uh, new kinds of structural, you know, uh, strategies are required. That was one of the big issues with uh, so-called Star Wars or or this or you know defense forces is that if one of the sides has protection, then they don't have an aggression regulator mechanism anymore, and so they'll become much more aggressive. And so in an environment where your aggression is matched to your opponent's levels of aggression, the existence of somebody that has a defense basically urges things towards a mutual destruction scenario. And this this is alluded to within the, the film as the DEFCON level rises. Uh, we hear about intelligence about the Soviet defense conditions also coming up and there's that mm -hmm. point at the end uh when falcon sort of finally is is embraced hope and is trying to talk down the general and the rest of the people in the pit um that uh they point out that the russians are on high alert 
And he's like, yeah, but you know, so are you. And, and didn't you do it first? Would, if, right. Isn't this what you would have done? In fact, isn't this what you just did? Your computers told you that they were on high alert. So you went to high alert. And then their computers told them that you were on high alert because you were on high alert and they went on high alert. So uh, that sort of de-escalation strategy uh, is requires a higher order understanding of the game, essentially. And right. And, and in the movie, it really pointed out, you know, the big thing that, that the kids in Falcon, they came in, they were like, th- their main point is, why would Russia do this? Why? They're like, this is completely unprovoked for them to point that many missiles at us right now. They're like, this cannot be right. When all the, you know, the general and everybody in the pit, they were looking at these data points saying that this was real and this was happening. But if you took a step back and you actually analyze the situation with human eyes rather than robot eyes, you could just see that this computer scenario made no sense. Uh, yeah, in that case. And there are actually a, a handful of real life incidents uh, where where some systems actually did report uh you know, misreport weather events as missile launches, some of the things like that. Uh, and there are a These are recorded? Yeah. Recorded events in history, like nuclear yes. misreading of the data? Correct. Yeah. That's terrifying. Tell me more about that. Um, uh, they made a movie about one of the incidents with a submarine commander that is played by Harrison Ford called K-19. And there's another relatively easy to find event, uh, on, that you can find online about a, uh, Soviet missile commander or Air Force base commander, uh, on their Western theater, which is... Eastern Europe is their Western theater uh, that I think is supposed to be like a, a flock of ducks or something uh, that that the radar said was was a incursion, um, and uh, in in both cases the commander basically just decided not to turn the keys uh, and sort of or not to not to report up the the possibly false you know, information. And again, this is alluded to as well. The wow. opening, the opening sequence, uh, of the film has where it's just a test, but, the uh, the boys that are in the silo want to hear a human voice before they press the button, uh, or at least yeah. one of them does. And it takes both of them. Yeah. He says, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna kill 20 million people without a phone call. Right. And then the other guy back and forth, but it's protocol, it's protocol. And I almost feel like it was kind of symbolic of almost more of a machine way of thinking versus a human way of thinking. And the guy who didn't flip the button, he was like, absolutely not. We're about to kill 20 million people. I'm not going to do that without verbal confirmation. I understand it's protocol, but also this is a problem. Uh, Yeah. Well, and of course, that's that problem is exactly what prompts the entire film in the first place because that gives Dabney Colbin's character the edge to argue for the automatic relays the claim that the 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 command authority actually has the right to make that decision and needs the confidence that having made the decision it will be carried out the way they expect it to be Uh, because again if you go back to the the chicken model 
if if you aren't producing a risk, if the other player knows that you won't attempt to win, then it's in their interest to to be as aggressive as possible. Um, so this, uh, I am not, I'm not a subject matter expert on AI. This is something you are much more well versed in than I am. Um, AI doesn't have emotion, obviously, yet. And that is one of the bigger pieces in decision making is emotion. There, there is something interesting about that element of the human design is that we can, two different people can be given the same information, but we will come to different conclusions and act differently based on our unique emotional responses. And that's not something that AI is necessarily doing. It's only doing what's the logical choice, right? Well, even that isn't really a great dichotomy. So one thing that AI really sort of highlights, uh, and this is this is well-known philosophically but isn't particularly well-appreciated, is that there's a real difference between strategy and morality um, where uh, strategic effectiveness is something that we're currently good at getting AIs to produce. Uh, so we can we can train a AI to play chess far better than we can train a human being to play chess. Um, mm -hmm. But a given chess game could have a moral dimension uh, if you're playing against a child to teach them how to play the game there might be a moral standing for making less than ideal moves to provide the child a chance to learn not necessarily throwing the game to the child although maybe also throwing the game to the child would be a moral decision but there are moral considerations that could be involved with a game of chess. And, and also externally, you could imagine uh, some sort of like, you know, evil villain type scenario where uh, the outcome of this chess game will determine the, the lives of hostages or something like that. Yeah. Uh, kind of like Saw. That's, yeah. And that's such a great metaphor because I, I uh, you know, you hear people talk about these concepts, but that's such a great way to frame it that's so easy to understand because humans understand that sometimes losing is important and it's not bad. Winning and losing aren't, aren't um, they don't have morality tied to them. It's the scenario around it where we derive morality. Uh, yeah, yeah. And so what the Whopper is presented as doing is running simulations of various strategic scenarios in order to work out the strategically ideal response to whatever might be happening. And as it happens, that's a very good analog of both something that was developed uh, starting in the late 1800s, but, but really brought to a very high level during the Second World War, and how existing game AI, uh, sort of super game AIs actually work, uh, is by, by trying things out and seeing what the probability of success looks like, and then training themselves to be able to find and estimate these high probability of success paths. Uh, there's a... So it's pure mathematics. 
it yes yeah um so they actually mention uh responses counter responses counter counter responses and so on during the sort of explanation of what's going on um while the real world is is highly variable um in many in many military situations and in essentially all game situations uh you can define the battle space to the point where you can actually come up with plausible options um but the problem is that plausible options explode very rapidly so imagine you were trying to set up a a super soccer ai uh every one of the 11 players on your team can do anything they want from second to second. And every one of the 11 players on the other team can do whatever they want from second to second. So given sort of one second of decision-making and, and professional sports operates on tighter tolerances than that, there's an enormous number of choices followed by, you know, an enormous number of responses and an enormous number of other choices. That explosion is, is, much too hard to deal with by simply running through all the possibilities. But Mm -hmm. what we've found out is that we can do something where we sample the space. So what we say is, okay, let's say I did this and let's say I play a million random games from this position. Now, all those random games are going to be fairly implausible and they're all going to be fairly bad but they're all going to be fairly equally bad by both sides. So if this is a good thing to do, and then fairly implausibly, fairly equally bad things happen after that, then that good thing should translate to winning most of the time. And if it's a bad thing, it should translate to losing most of the time. And so we find those those things that translate to large probability winnings, and then we train a, an, a, a neural net to behave like that thing that is finding these better things. And then we recycle this whole process. We plug this slightly better estimate of what's good and what's bad into the process of playing out random situations to make the random situations slightly more plausible and slightly stronger, and then retest what good and bad options are in the in the context of a stronger system and when you do this cycle hundreds to hundreds of thousands of times you wind up with a neural net that has gained deep strategic insights into the tactical situation of the specific scenario or or game situation that you're thinking about so to put this in terms that are very, very plain to me, it's similar to early childhood development. As a kid explores the world around them, they're taking in more information that contributes to the next time they make a decision. Oh, the stove's hot. Don't touch it. Uh, yeah. Yeah. There's there's a lot of that. Um, there's another, there's a story. So the Navy... Uh, during World War II, set up a division to work out combat tactics um, because things like submarines and aircraft carriers had never been as as effective as they were during World War II. And so tactical doctrine didn't exist uh, in, this, in this era. And so there was this 
uh, I, I think it, I think the division was actually being run by a person who was like on the disabled list. And so he kind of, you know, he had some vim and, and pulled together some stuff, but he couldn't go out in the water anymore. So he couldn't get a lot of resources and he was actually forced to use a lot of, uh, female officers. Um, and they set up a war game room with pretty decent conditions and they would test out scenarios and play out a bunch of games just to kind of see what looked like it was working and what didn't look like it was working. Um, and the story goes, and there's some arguments this might be slightly apocryphal, but the thing that really sort of kicked them up and got them into general use and helped them suppress the effectiveness of wolf packs on the convoys uh, was that an admiral uh, visited, saw the thing going on, and inserted himself in as one of the force commanders to, to you know, he was like, oh, I can do this, and started saying, hey, I'll give orders for this side. And he gets his clut cleaned, and he's like, well, that's that's embarrassing. Send out the, the man from the other side, and they send out this 22-year-old girl uh, who is it's just the person they have. And so he's like, well... Let's give this thing some funding and let's start taking these recommendations because if, if you know, college girls can beat admirals, then then we need to be up in our game here. That's really interesting. Um, are you familiar with the Turing test? Absolutely, yes. So I saw an article today that I, I skimmed over it and it said that ChatGPT has just broken the Turing test. Um First of all, could you explain what the Turing test is and speak to the validity of that article, if you've heard that or not? Yeah, yeah, sure. So Alan Turing is pretty much the, the father of computation. His paper uh, on what general computation was and how it might be achieved uh, isn't the first proposal, but it's it's really the most important uh, theoretical breakthrough in describing what computers can and cannot do. Uh, and he got a lot of questions over the, the years about whether or not machines could think and and the degree to which artificial intelligence might be possible. And so the Turing test uh, was a proposal in, in an essay he wrote, um, basically saying that if a machine could adequately imitate human behavior to the degree that a human wouldn't really be able to tell the difference between whether they're dealing with a machine or dealing with a human, then, then that would be a, a sign that artificial intelligence had been achieved. Um, In terms of where ChatGPT is, uh, it it certainly has uh, passed through that. Uh, there have been a number of of documented studies, and and also I've talked to people who have done some uh, kind of off the just just colloquial off the cuff type things to to check, um, and nobody is a hundred percent on determining the difference between uh, uh, machine-generated and human-generated objects. Um, 
There's actually a rather bizarre conspiracy theory uh, that some of like the Rings of Power and I think some other recent streaming shows might have been written by AIs. Uh, <laughs> uh, and and that like the 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 so-called writers, if you buy into the theory, are are sort of covering as they're trying to to get things going. Um, this is a total side note, but um, super B-list. This is like you know Z Z-list movie. Trump versus the Illuminati. Have you seen that one? It's, I have uh, not. That one was definitely written by some kind of AI or very drunk college kids. The <laughs> script is something else. It's straight off the internet. Okay. But um, simulations of human voices uh, have already gotten to the point where they can pass pass muster of, of human uh, creation. Uh, there's There's videos that have gone viral that have the past presidents um, playing video games against each other and chatting online and, you know, commenting adversely about various play styles. I saw one where uh, somebody had developed a model that would create a cover of a song as done by Frank Sinatra. Wow. I saw that, uh, yeah, Drake, he he was pretty upset by the fact that um, somebody made a song using his voice. And then Grimes, she came out with um, a statement. Now, she's a big, big, uh, what do you want to say? She, she likes AI. She likes AI a lot. So Grimes came out with this technology that actually allows anybody to use her voice and she wants to help push AI forward, but she doesn't see it as a threat to her creative process. She sees it as a collaboration. So where Drake came out and he's trying to not let anybody use his voice or his likeness, he wants to protect that. Grimes is seeing it as an opportunity to partner with people. And she's like, yeah, please make music. Use my voice. Use my likeness. Well, let's split the profits. And so I see that as two different uh... Um, ways of thinking about what we could do with this technology. Right. Well, allow me to introduce you to a third one. How much of Grimes's voice and appearance and Drake's voice and appearance belong to him and how much belong to the human species as a whole? Mm. To what extent is the cultural and artistic impact of their work, their contribution or the apotheosis of style that have been developed over decades or centuries and to what is owed or that that legacy um yeah what if what if it isn't drake's voice that's being imitated what if it's one of the seven and a half billion of us that happen to share his intonation so closely that nobody can distinguish them or if, as it happens, his voice is truly unique right now, but sometime within recorded history, somebody has actually produced intonations, what if it was theirs? Or if not that, what if it's somebody coming up? Um, so, And that's really interesting because now we're talking about branding versus identity versus what makes us human, what makes us individual. I mean, these are really, really deep conversations that I do think that AI is going to be um, challenging. 
Like, right. It's going to make us think about these things. What makes me different from somebody else who is a doppelganger? Well, and that also gets direct into the themes that War Games is ultimately uh, exploring. Uh, as a kid, the the opening you know shout fight between the general and Dabney Coleman doesn't really resonate. But once you understand these issues and you start thinking about what he's talking about. So we have presumably civilian control of the military. That's one of the cornerstones of our government. But he's pointing out that they've developed a super AI to actually work out nuclear strategy for themselves. And so the president isn't actually in control within that context of America's nuclear strategy because the computer's designing America's nuclear strategy. The president's job is to tell the computer yes or not tell the computer yes. And that's it. That's his entire job. And then, of course, at the end of the film, uh, when everything's going to hell and they think that the Russians have launched the nukes, you know, all out. Uh, the general asks what the computer's recommendation is, and the computer's recommendation is launch everything right now. And he's like, I need a computer to tell me that. So some of these situations are so simple that even we can solve them. Um, and so there, we've, in those cases, perhaps given up our autonomy for a, a scenario that doesn't necessarily exist. And also the hallucination problem um, uh, the machine is just playing a game and does not actually understand the content of what it's doing. I had, I had an interesting experiment. Um, I was playing around with one of these generative AIs. Uh, it had done a good job on a few summaries of my white paper. And so I asked it to write a press release it wrote a very plausible press release. It quoted three different people. Uh, none of those people exist. Two of those people it identified by their very prestigious positions in society, uh, which would make it incredibly easy to verify that they don't exist. <laughs> and the third one is the co-creator, which there are no co-creators to this this thing. I, I invented it myself. Reality check. The science of fiction. And that's really one of the interesting things about AI and, and a lot of these emerging technologies in general is that they do tend to look a lot more polished. But at the end of the day, it's some of those human errors and just our scruffiness that makes us human and makes us enjoy something more. And it's, it's almost like there's become this uncanny valley with language. And are you familiar with the uncanny valley? Yeah, that's that's a very good point, and and I think you're getting at something that I I'm trying to promulgate as to as many people as possible. That polish is what the AIs are actually training themselves to be able to do. the The chat GPTs, the the bards, the orcas, the llamas, they are not intentionally creating super intelligent agents that that can think and act as humans do. They're training up style machines that are abstracting out what evocative human text looks like so that they can create evocative human text in response. And we as people respond to marketing messages and essays and so on 
in ways that are inappropriate because we're responding to the style and not the substance. Um, mm -hmm. And the AIs, they're probably not better than us as stylists. Our very best stylists are better than the AIs, but it's reasonable to expect that in the near term, they will become better stylists than us. It's not reasonable to expect that they will gain more substance than we have access to in, in a reasonably short time frame. So what are some of the implications of this? And I know that this is really, that's a very broad question. So I'm going to narrow it down a little bit. What are some of the implications of this right now, these technologies, when it strictly comes to game theory and war? Uh, well, the primary implication is that the mechanisms that we're presently using, the social and cultural mechanisms that we use to sort of manage our internal communications and cultures and so on, are inadequate because they're built out of a human degree of error and judgment. And we have access to a greater than human degree of both error and judgment now. Um, and so we're going to have to examine these things at the game theory level. Uh, this, th this kind of coping with things be that work because of our own human limitations stop working if we stop our human limitations. Um, and I, a way to think about this is think about traffic before cars and after cars. Um, there was actually, I think Disney uh, did a series of animations to teach people how to drive on freeways. And it was this whole thing of how you actually have to speed up when you get on a freeway because everybody's there is driving 60 miles an hour. And so if you... You would hope. Yeah, right. So if you get on the road at surface street speeds of like 20 miles an hour, and just figure, oh, well, I'll speed up. Well, then you're going to cause a crash or a traffic jam. Um, and so in order to utilize this greater capacity, you actually have to change your behavior in ways that make that capacity useful. Uh, and that's, that's, where we're, that's where we've been at for a while now. Um, because while there isn't a lot of evidence that we're using Whopper-like devices to handle our geopolitical strategy that still seems to be people talking to each other and bribing each other and extorting each other whatever makes you know diplomats happy um people are using these technologies in the financial industry uh so I, I, before we get too far um into that and i do want to circle back to that but right now i kind of want to return back to an earlier point you made about how uh, the military is supposedly kind of run by the people. And if you look at our whole political system, it's supposed to be something that people vote on and participate in. And when you look at kind of how our society is structured, politicians in some ways have their hands tied because they need to get voted in. And to get voted in, they need people to like them. So in a large way, the general population and the whims of the general population are going to control who gets voted in and what they're capable of. But 
what happens when the general population is being subconsciously controlled. Now, these are things, again, that I'm not an expert in. Maybe you can speak to it, but we have bots all over the internet writing articles and putting out content that subconsciously is brainwashing people. It's a psyop and people start believing things that may or may not be real, that could be favorable or unfavorable for our nation's large scale political interests. And when the entire society of people gets affected that way and they start creating demands, then the politicians have their hands tied and have to can you speak to any of that at all? Yeah, that that gets directly to the point that I'm making about the inadequacies of our our current uh, strategic game theoretic structure of of how we're managing our cultures. Um, our society is, you know, sort of the voice of the people, but we have this capacity to create non-human voices that are relatively indistinguishable, and and as the computers get better and better at that they'll need less and less help from human beings to sort of bridge the gap. Um, this might seem a little off topic, but I'm going to bring it home. I promise. There was a cheating scandal okay. in high level chess about a year ago. Um, there was this guy who's improved unbelievably quickly. Um, he was playing a game against the best human chess player. He won that game. And after the game was over, the the champ uh, withdrew from the tournament, made a few noises, and then after the tournament was over, uh, accused him of cheating and said that he didn't want to play against cheaters. And uh, there's been some drama about this. One of the bizarre things about chess is that because we have computers that are better than us at chess, you or I could beat the world champion in a game of chess by just taking the moves they make asking our computer what to do and responding for whatever the computer tells us to do. That would be very obvious if we did that, but the better you are at chess, the less help you need. And so somebody that's an actual super grandmaster or nearly a super grandmaster could essentially get one or maybe two pieces of advice during the course of a game and become, go from being a top 50 chess player to a top five chess player or even number one. Um, to bring this home, as these generative AIs are becoming slicker and better and say they can beat a Turing test 20% of the time or 30% of the time, the existence of that doesn't preclude a human being quarterback running networks of a dozen or a hundred or a thousand of these agents. And the better those agents get, the more of them one of these human quarterbacks could reasonably coordinate. So we could see scenarios as these things get better. Like right now, there's already, as you point out, bot networks that are being controlled by kids playing pranks or billionaires that, you know, want people to buy more of their, their tissue paper or whatever. Um, the as these technologies become more and more ubiquitous and it's it's going very rapidly uh the capacity for those things expands greatly and so the value of the public sphere diminishes and in a world where the political is simply a a 
recapitulation of the public sphere, then the political becomes essentially irrelevant to reality. Uh, and that's that's the challenge. Uh, we We have seen and we will see more of our societies becoming economically, politically, and culturally irrelevant um, unless we develop new and more robust kinds of systems that can handle non-human participation. Uh, And there are the current stated strategies other than myself are are based around identity style things. So Sam Altman, for example, has just backed something called WorldCoin, which seems to be some sort of attempt to get human biometrics on a blockchain and get every single human being to voluntarily add their biometric information to a blockchain to allow all activity be traced to either an identified human being or or not and and be you know balanced off one way or the other that strikes me as insanely unwise and just really not that plausible no uh, <laughs> you know just trying to get people to get vaccines was hard enough sure it, it, getting people you know it's like there's people out there still don't even know how to send an email it's <laughs> getting let alone getting them on a blockchain yes yeah uh one of my one of my favorite Heinleins uh is called have spacesuit will travel and um the the protagonist's father is we we eventually find out he's highly impressive but he's he's sort of checked out of society and he managed the house funds uh with two baskets uh, household money and tax money. And at the end of each year, he takes the all the money in the tax money thing and sends it into the IRS just in a bundle. And and so IRS agents come to him. He's important enough that they don't just like clap him in irons and throw him in jail and uh, tell him that he has to fill out his tax forms. And he says, the law, the it's it's not illegal to be illiterate. The law can't actually compel me to fill out tax forms. That's all the money I owe you. There it is in cash. You have to accept cash. Go for it. I wouldn't recommend you try this in your own personal life, but it's it's a great little it's a great little scene. Yeah, I don't want to mess with the IRS. So I'm still uh, I'm still a little bit traumatized about what we were saying earlier about you know, you know these bots and stuff potentially affecting our society's opinion on something because there is a tipping point with society malcolm gladwell talks about that in his book tipping point where sure. once there's enough people that believe a certain thing it's going to be a whole cascading effect that that's how people think in general and if there are these bots so now i'm saying if hypothetically because it sounds like you know there are there are right. these bots yes 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 that are wrong tense so it's not potential it's not it might happen yeah these are things that exist and already have happened um there was a a fairly controversial study that facebook didn't get broken up for uh that a paper was released where they revealed that for whatever reason they decided to attempt to intentionally affect the mood of a large fraction of their of their user base to make them more no depressed. Kidding. And well, according worked. to the study, it worked. Um, I can look around and tell you it worked. <laughs> well, yeah. Uh, well, this is, this is above and beyond whatever simple natural 
effect of there's a number of sociologists that claim that social media is killing us. Uh, and there's mm -hmm. strong associations between increased uh, suicide rates uh, with usage. And there's also a U.S. government longitudinal study uh, where they they get age cohorts and just sort of track their progress through time. And uh, it was not that long ago that the most recent teenage cohort was added to the group. And they recorded the lowest mental health index that has ever wow. been recorded by an enormous margin. So what? So so what does this look like for our government and political systems long term? Is there a plan? Is there a strategy? Because it sounds. Because I, I hate to say they. That's one of my least favorite words when talking about anything like this, conspiracy or otherwise. Oh they're controlling the AI. Okay, who's controlling the AI? Who's controlling the bots? Are they aware of these potential negative outcomes? Are they trying to do that? Is it doing it an auto autonomously? I can't say that word. Is it doing it with or without our control? Because it, it sounds like this is a I don't everybody think... loses situation. Well, yeah. So I would say I would say that they isn't a great word. I would say we have this problem. Um, who's we? We, the human beings that are presently alive, have this problem. Uh, we okay. have access to extraordinary new capacity, and we have we have not yet built a system that can productively use that capacity for us. So she's controlling it. At this point, we are using the systems of control that have existed before the capacity existed. So we're operating governments that operate on the principles that industrial society developed for governments. Uh, we have corporations doing large amounts of economic activity built around the success of the corporations that created cars and, and uh, the computers in the first place and, and the telephones and everything else. So where did these, where did these, I guess, these bots come from? The ones that show up on social media, you know, let's just take the Facebook example. So Facebook did this depression study that was effective. Why? Uh, as far as I can tell from their paper, they just wanted to see if they could, uh, which is very, you know, Nazi medical research of them, uh, but definitely, definitely lizard people stuff, <laughs> right? Uh, but uh, a lot of the bots. So I, I, I read about a guy recently. He's got a YouTube channel, and as a, an experiment, basically just to see what the plausibility with current technology looks like, he decided to create some fake human beings, and he was relatively above board, like. You know, they're named things like alias fake name, but they still have faces that look like human faces and a background history and so on. And he was able to go. Oh, these are profiles. These are profiles. Yes. Uh, okay. These are online profiles on multiple linked up uh, social media networks. And he was able to find people that sold, you know, profiles that you could use to hook into your thing. And he wanted to see how plausible and how many he could get for, I think it was $50. Um, and, and he had some technical skills as well. What he discovered was the existence of hundred thousand plus networks of, of botted IDs that exist on 
multiple channels that uh, were all heating up uh, with with the political that they'd been very high so who during made them? anonymous people uh, who who built them up or and would buy and sell them. So there's there are businesses, you know, like I'll. I say have no soul and technical experience, so I go out and put together a quarter of a million profiles. And then, if you okay. would like this show to become very popular, uh, you could have a hundred thousand profiles subscribed to it. Right, right. And I do. I did see. I kind of just observed this anecdotally myself. Um, Instagram kind of started off as people just sharing pictures of you know, things that made him happy. And then it escalated into the influencer era, which I feel like that era is kind of dying right now, but people were buying followers and a lot of those followers were fake. Mm -hmm. And it's, but it led to these super, these inflated superstar statuses of these people that never were superstars to begin with. And so I see where some of these bots got created from, but it sounds like the implications of these things go way beyond what they were designed for because they were just designed to make someone a quick buck so someone else could get famous. But now they're going way beyond that design and they're influencing society, which is influencing politics, which could ultimately influence our our war games, our, our nuclear strikes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, the, the nuclear you know, inventory probably still works. Uh, you know, we haven't tested it for a few decades, but they are doing a lot of stuff to make sure that it keeps working. Uh, and so and that risk. Keep, uh, I was going to say, do they, they still keep nuclear systems on kind of the old school turnkey method for specifically kind of that safety reason that was implied in war games? They don't want a machine pulling the trigger. Uh, so far as so far as I know, I mean that kind of stuff is under top secret security clearance lock and key. Uh, but mm-hmm. but yeah, um, uh, nuclear control is is something that uh, the Energy Department is fairly serious about. Uh, and, yeah. And I I haven't heard anything about like you know nukes showing up in theater. Uh, they are perhaps not as careful as we might have liked. Uh, several nuclear devices have been lost uh, through the years. Um, what do you mean lost? Well, uh, for example, the original exploration that found the Titanic and and took those first pictures of it, um, that was a cover story. A Soviet nuclear submarine actually sank in that area. And so the federal government uh, funded a secret mission to find and retrieve material from that submarine. And uh, and the cover story was that, you know, some some random millionaire like, you know, got crazy and decided that they wanted to look at the Titanic. Uh, they were able that to... feels way too parallel to what's going on right now. <laughs> they they were able to uh, find and recover the materials so rapidly that they actually had time left on the grant, and they were like, "Well, let's you know go take a look for the Titanic." It's not like we can like leave and be like, "Nope, we couldn't find the Titanic." Uh, guess we're going to wrap up early, and they found the wow. Titanic too, and so they took the pictures and and did the cover story. Reality check. The science of fiction. 
Yeah. Okay. So they're, so they're, so nukes are going missing. It's not like I lost my keys the other day. Oops, we can't find the nukes anymore. Is well, they... there's some other incidences that are not quite that extreme. So one thing that happens with nuclear power plants is that because we don't have uh, fuel reprocessing, uh, we inter the, the spent control fuel rods on site. So uh, various power plants basically have a swaying pool that has fuel rods in them that have highly nuclear material that are decaying. Um, wow. The rods themselves, because they're in water and were in boiling water during operation or very high pressure, very high temperature water, uh, can have a certain amount of, of decay. So one of the things that happened after 9-11 was a wide-scale audit of where everything was. And there was a fuel rod, I think the story I heard was it was somewhere in North Carolina, uh, which had effectively rusted through. And so like the bottom couple feet of the rod had dropped off and hit the bottom of the pool. But the monitoring uh, system had had noticed that the rod was lighter than it was supposed to be. And they were like, oh, it's at the bottom of the pool. That's an incredibly radioactive environment. We're not even going to go look. We're just going to know it's on the bottom of the pool. But it was technically missing. Um, and so mm. when... When after 9-11, when everybody got really paranoid and was like, let's get all the T's dotted and all the I's crossed or whatever, um, they had to get a special purpose, highly radiation resistant robot to go into their pool and go down to the bottom and take a picture of the rod and like pick it up and shake it around or whatever to, to determine that it had the right mass and that it, mm -hmm. it wasn't actually lost. So that's a case where I believe it was over a decade that nuclear material was lost by being a few feet away from where it was supposed to be. So we're, so we're talking about the PSYOP, we're talking about missing nukes. What are some of the other implications of AI with global security? Uh, well, the biggie is, again, something that comes up in the film, the, the, the plausibility of the hallucination. Um, so in the case of in the case of, you know, my little toy where I'm just like having it, you know, show me something, the fact that it makes up three people, all of whom I can trivially verify don't exist, isn't that big a deal. Um, the case where it makes up an incoming nuclear strike where you can't verify that it doesn't exist until you ask some poor kid on a radio tower in Maine to sit around and find out whether or not he gets vaporized, um, is a much bigger deal because it might be irresponsible to wait around and find out whether or not that kid gets vaporized if it's going to impair your ability to cope with the aftermath. Uh, so, Well, it especially is a lot of our governments and societies, our first world societies are moving more into space. We're becoming, I mean, we are moving towards being an interplanetary species. And once we can't have eyes on these things, we are going to strictly rely on this data. Well, and that's where the financial implications are also quite bad because AIs of these calibers have been engaged in market activity and as the primary movers of market activity for decades now. And so things like the 2008 financial crisis and the people talking about the, the commercial real estate death spirals because the downtowns were emptied out by COVID and then lots of people don't want to go back to work. So uh, 
is that one and a half trillion of highly levered commercial property worth any money or is it worth no money? And those are wow. very different outcomes. Um, but the markets that should manage and handle these decisions and transitions are dominated by AI machines that are attempting to eke out microsecond advantages and not considering the underlying information and intentions of the people. Is AI controlling the stock market right now? Uh, for all practical purposes, um, I would say AI has been in fundamental control of the stock market for decades. And that is just really uh, crazy for me to think about because I for the most part, you know, you kind of just think about it. It's like, it's they, it's they are in control. There's people who show up at Wall Street and there's people doing their jobs and they use AI as a tool or, an, or not even just AI. They are using computers and technology as tools. And to really realize through this conversation, just how deeply rooted AI is in our society at every level from government to finances to even just the way we think, it truly um, can be a little bit of a frightening thought. So tell me this. Um, I kind of want to know just how widespread AI is in our day-to-day -day lives and in its usage. And and what's its like failability like? Like what is it? Does it does it have a goal? Like is it can you speak to that a little bit? Uh well, technological ubiquity is is just the reality. Um Unless, unless you're somehow living off grid on food that you raised from seeds that you bred yourself in some place that nobody cares about enough to take away from you, um, you're you're dealing with electronic systems constantly. Your credit score is being you know continually readjusted and so on. Um, to the extent that your economic life is being controlled by marketplaces. 97 to 98% of market activity in every given market is being handled by professional trading houses. And those professional trading houses are implementing algorithms to do their trading for them at the pace and scale and with the information content that exists. Uh, humans are outside of capacity. So if are there ethics committees in place with that? Because nope. That it's so that right there just sounds like a glaring problem because yep. if you have, if you have these these powerhouses controlling the market and their best interest is to serve their current clients who are already wealthy, I their, think those systems are probably going to. I think it would be manipulate a the wrong, market. Yes, I think it would be a wrong term to use control. Um, they're the dominant players within the marketplace, so the what's actually going on um, is that the markets are losing their effectiveness because of this, mm -hmm. because what markets do is aggregate opinions into a collective consensus, the consensus that results in the most money outcome. Um, but just as when you, we, we added players to the chicken game, um, and the game became much, much more dangerous to try to be aggressive in. When we add players to a consensus game, uh, we can create a system where 
those new players can make money. Uh, so we we count financial earnings as part of GDP. So a uh, couple of years back, there was the whole big thing with Robinhood. And all these kids on Reddit got online and they decided that they wanted to become a player. And sure. they, they changed the game for a short time. Yeah. That's that's a that's a like that. that's a very visible and obvious case of what what's going on, but what has actually been happening for decades um, is that effectively larger numbers of bots than that have been getting in, and they have changed the nature of the game to the point where the markets probably have completely lost their ability to to manage our economy in a way that is conducive to us getting to keep having an economy. Uh, and so that's- So where is Raz al Ghul and how do we find him and tell him to stop? <laughs> <laughs> well, again, so this is not a situation that requires some sort of string pulling mastermind. You know, Moriarty doesn't have to be doing this to us. Um, <laughs> Just as the industrial age degraded the ability of monarchies to handle the military realities of their situation, because if you can mass produce guns, having a small aristocracy of trained combatants to be high-grade military is relatively useless in the face of the ability to produce a very, very large number of very, very accurate weapons and arm a very, very large populace with them and then have them massacre small elite groups in in sort of mass charge scenarios. And then that developed even further into trench warfare and tanks and planes and other things that meant that an entirely different kind of military social organization would be necessary in order to create a stable and functioning state. It seems like AI can both level the playing field and completely obliterate or change the game. It's capable of both of those things. It, well, effectively, by leveling the play field, it does obliterate and change the game. So imagine- It could be good or bad. Right. Yeah. Imagine a world where poker was an important activity and people got promotions at work and and got to be president of the United States and you know run fortune 500 companies based on how wealthy they played poker well computers play poker better than we do so a human being willing to you know wear a pair of headphones and do whatever the computer tells them to do will be better at playing poker than any human being could ever hope to be and so such a human would become president of the United States and and we're on Fortune 500 companies and so on. A world where poker ability was being used to decide the sort of social rank ordering of human beings would probably work out okay because while we would lose out a few geniuses that were, you know, particularly bad at poker for whatever reason, and we'd pick up Sorry, a few... Sorry, Einstein, you're out. <laughs> yeah, right. And we'd pick up a few, you know, detritus people that were especially good at poker, but really shouldn't be in a boardroom. Um, in general, smarter people are smarter than dumber people. 
you know, more, more self-controlled people are more self-controlled than less self-controlled people. A lot of the traits that, that we find useful in human beings align with a lot of the other traits that we find useful in human beings. And so we, we, such a society could be gotten away with, but if poker bots were introduced to that society, the feel, the playing field gets leveled. Suddenly their selection process doesn't exist anymore and it's all over. Well, we use college essays as our mechanism to decide a, a big piece of how things go. ChatGPT produces college essays that are way better than we produce, yeah. and it does it in seconds. Um, and that's really just such a fascinating because it's, you know, I think one of the first things uh, that we really need to talk about is identifying the game. Because AI is going to change the game, but what game and for who? And is this bad? Because if you're talking about emerging technologies, some people are going to be scared. But if you are going to make something more accessible to someone who is disabled, blind, deaf, dyslexic, you know, name whatever uh, disability they have, and a technology that comes out that levels the playing field for them, and now that person becomes a major player and they put somebody else... Um, like they're a threat to that other person now that that changes the game but it's not bad right well and think about the ending of war games where the people actually do pull back um and that's a very evocative i mean it's it's bizarre that they managed to make watching a silent animation of wireframe you know warfare at this tense suspenseful moment um but imagine the whopper actually exists and can really do what what it says it does and we sit down the world leaders of the un security council which is more or less congruent to the the nuclear powers and have it show them the rational outcomes of their policies until they come to an agreement that isn't self-destructive um would that be possible is that a better outcome um as computers make it possible to find these fine gradations uh where where chat gpt has this style thing that allows it to write something that looks exactly like a great college essay in spite of not actually knowing as much as a highly educated college student does, um, can we find those distinctions of what does and doesn't matter and how to yeah. how to capture ideas as ideas and value those things and not just valuing the style and flash that turns those ideas into things that we are willing to read or grade. And I really feel like you just hit the nail on the head right there. And that just identifies such a big difference between humans and the technologies that we create is is we do still have the ability to be creative. The AI can only create what we've taught it how to create. It can't actually create. And that is something that's very special and unique to humans. But it does, again, level the playing field. I think about Grimes with her her voice technology. Now someone, you know, any person can pick up you know, a uh, garage band and use the AI technology with Grimes. And now they can be a music artist and they share in the royalties with a very famous established music artist. 
And that's not necessarily a bad thing. That opens up the door for creative people to be more expressive. It lowers the barrier of entry. I, I actually have a friend who, um, they're a total conspiracy theorist, but I love him to death. And their whole conspiracy theory is that a lot of the AI fear-mongering movies from The Matrix to Terminator and on are all movies that were created by the upper elite to make the lower and middle classes afraid of AI and these technologies with the explicit purpose that we would resist the technologies when they started to show up because the elite knew that once these technologies came out, it would level the playing field and anybody could be rich and famous. <laughs> so that's my friend's conspiracy theory. <laughs> well, two points. Uh, James Cameron apparently recently came out with a statement uh, concerning AI uh, saying, I told you so, um, intimating the Terminator was an anti-AI messaging. Um, there's also <laughs> a a reasonably popular YouTube channel, um, Ryan George, have you ever heard of Pitch Meeting? I'll have to check it out. So this guy, he's a comedian, and he he acts out a skit of how a writer could pitch a modern blockbuster to a producer and sort of makes fun of the ridiculous decisions that go into whatever it is. Um, and so he, he had one, I cannot remember which series it was, but it was one of the Disney Marvel series. Um, and the the writer is pitching some kind of, of pro AI message and uh, the producer and they're both him, you know, in shot, reverse shot, but the producer says, yes, our, our script AI is uh, suggesting that we produce media with that kind of message actually rather aggressively. Now that I think about it, um, so yeah, I think it was she Hulk because like that there's a, mm. there's a twist in that where, Marvel's actually being run by AIs. Uh, but anyhow. <laughs> I can definitely see Marvel and Disney being run by a bunch of bots. That would not surprise me. Yeah. Uh, so anyhow, um, uh, yeah, there, there there definitely is some, some kinds of uh, uh, moves in that direction uh, that we can see. But I, I, I'm more convinced that it's a case of technology not being evenly useful so communication and information technology has been most useful so far to the people who are in sort of the fame industries uh you know communication and to the financial industries which is also a communication mm -hmm. industry so yeah elon musk can tweet something and it'll get way more reactions than i will despite the value of what either of us might tweet i might tweet something of more value but his will still get more recognition right uh but our societies were built on the existence of fame and financial wealth and so on where the interhuman capacities were where they were because we were all humans so if we if we introduce a technology that makes the humans that are good at getting famous and the humans that are good at at coming up with good deals for themselves to trade in can do more of what they're doing then unless we structure our society in such a way that increasing the amount of fame and the amount of financial wealth 
is also economically and culturally beneficial to us in general, then... And this kind of plays into the economics design that you have come up with, right? Yes. Yeah. So what I've done is essentially used information theory to find a way to measure financial information, which allows the deal space to be directly affected so that humans or AIs, if they're developed, can generate deals not for themselves, but for society in general to take advantage of, and then get rewarded not based on the sort of degree of error that counterparties that they happen to be able to find engage in. So it's not how bad a deal that you can impose on somebody that doesn't know any better. It's how good a deal you can offer to people that don't know any better to make their profit increase and then share in that profit. And that's really cool. And I, I do like that because uh, having owned my own business for the last 10 years, it, you're really not short of people out there that are trying to take advantage of what you don't know. And the more experienced I got in my business, the easier it was for me to sniff those people out. But it would have really saved me a lot of heartache in the early years of my business if those people just didn't exist to begin with. And if people who did approach me with a proposition were genuinely had my best interests at heart, mutual interests. Sure. Um, yeah. And and there there's a lot of opportunity in creating to... to overload the term safe spaces uh, for people to be economically, you know, viable uh, and that doing so would actually increase economic activity. Um, mm -hmm. The same thing goes going to like the film. Uh, they don't really do a reexamination of what sorts of strategies and what sort of structures for what sort of strategies would need to be engaged in. But that's, that's once again, going back to we, this is a challenge for us. We have a government that is structurally incapable of dealing with the cultural forms that we can and have built. And unless all of us want to go Amish and just say no more social media, um, we're also going to have to reform government in ways that identify what its valuable services actually are and how those services can be put together uh, in ways that function with the kind of cultures that we can actually build where a 19-year-old can pretend to be a billionaire. Wow, that's a little... I mean, this is... I feel like we could do so many more episodes on this because as AI becomes... A bigger part of our lives, these topics are going to become more and more relevant and there's going to be just so much more ongoing dialogue. Um, we're kind of getting ready for a reality check, but I just wanted to ask you before we uh, score the plausibility of this concept, are there any other thoughts that you had about war games or some of your expertise as it relates to the film? Um. Uh, I think I think we covered most of the high points. Um, I think another good turning point is uh, sort of Falcon's nihilism to hope turn. Um, there's an unfortunate fact that a lot of people confronting the size and scope of these issues 
simply check out. Um, and actually, the Unabomber claims that that's what happened to him. Um, his his thing covers the the ongoing computerization and the his belief that that would uh, overtake and then crash human society, uh, and that therefore you should just mail bombs to people. I. I, I think hope is a better option myself, uh, but but it is it is a personal struggle to to try uh, in the face of of this inhuman capacity uh, because Falcon was dealing with this machine that he'd created that simply would not learn futility, and so he adopted futility. Well, he was also. He was also dealing with the grief of the loss of his child. And that's Absolutely, something the film yes. didn't really go into. But that's where he drew his nihilism from to begin with. And I think the kids showing up, um, like the the girl, she says, she's like, I'm only 17. And she's like, and, and then he goes back and he's like, yeah, well, maybe we prolong it a little bit and you'll grow up and you'll have a kid, but they're going to still die. And so right. it was really, a lot of his nihilism was just coming from a great source of pain, but and I think that's probably a lot of people. A lot of people are in a lot of pain and that's where that nihilism comes from. So I think that that's just a reminder and a call to society to look out for and take care of each other. Uh, yeah, I think that's I think that's good. And if you can muster some enthusiasm, try to be as infectious as possible. Uh. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I, I do believe in humanity. I, I, I think that we, you know, every, I said this, I've said this pretty much every episode so far this season is, there's there's good stuff we're coming up with for everything bad and dark and dangerous there's something amazing that they were coming up with for all of the terrible potential outcomes of ai there's also a lot of really really cool things that are coming out with it too that are going to make people's lives just so much better oh absolutely yeah if you'd introduced to say 16th century england the concept that modern life expectancies uh, uh, you know, travel speeds, uh, food options, uh, clothing options would would exist. That that air conditioning could be a thing. Um, you know, if they didn't burn you at the stake as a witch, then then you know, the, yeah, they'd, they'd be they'd be amazed and stunned at things like human flight. Uh, and one of the one of the things that's weird is that some of this fruit has remained low hanging for a very, very long time. So, uh, 1783 was the first public demonstration of a hot air balloon. The technologies that would enable you to build a hot air balloon if you knew that such a thing was possible and decided to do it, um, are probably somewhere between seven and 9,000 years old. That's when high fat flax was finally developed. So, People could have built hot air balloons before the founding of Sumer if they wanted to, but we didn't think well, of it. One reason why I just really love sci-fi is people come up with these ideas and then someone grows up watching these sci-fi films and then when they grow up, they become a scientist and they draw from their inspiration. I was just watching something the other day that NASA put out and they're putting some AI into their space systems and they're jokingly calling it Hal, but a benevolent Hal. And I, I just think that that's so funny because it's like we all grew up 
watching some of these films and now these technologies are becoming real. Uh, yeah, well, and in in the sequel, 2010, Hal actually is shown to be benevolent. Uh, his maniacal behavior in the first one was actually the result of a misapplied order causing misalignment in his behavior. Uh, basically, the, the military gave him a secret command uh, saying that his number one priority was mission success. And so when the crew goes against his recommendation and it doesn't work out as well as he thought his recommendation would work out, he realizes that the existence of the crew is a potential risk to the mission. And therefore, it is now his duty to eliminate the crew so that the mission can be as, as successful as possible. Yeah. So let's uh, let's do a reality check. So um, looking at our one to five scale, let's talk a little bit about the current state of AI research and our technological capacities at this time. And give me give me that one to five scale. How plausible is it for the concept of war games where AI technology exterminates humanity? Are we at a one? Are we at a five? Well, um, the film as the film in its setting is highly implausible because the technology the technological capacity that it's, it's implying doesn't yet exist. Um, but the AI that it's, it's suggesting uh, has been around for about a decade now, um, a little bit longer than that. Uh, so we're at full plausibility there. Um, I don't think that they're presently plugged into our geopolitical systems. So I'd put it somewhere around a three- in terms of its capacity to, to cause nuclear Armageddon. Um, but they are plugged into our financial systems and, and they've been causing flash crashes. Uh, the, the 87 hyper, you know, super crash was actually an instance of an algorithmic flash crash. So, so an economical Armageddon. Economic Armageddon is, is something that we, are watching unfold. So I would give that a five. So that's a five. Yes. <laughs> Fantastic. Can't wait to be a home buyer in ep economical Armageddon. All right. Well, do you have any um, kind of just final thoughts on this topic? And then as any, you know, self-promotion, where can people find more about you or some of the projects that you're working on? Um, let me know like where, and then I'll list all of these things in the description. Okay. Yeah, sure. Uh, well, I have a website called cordis.com, C-O-O-R-D-I-S-C. Uh, if anyone would like to reach out to me, you can find me at noahphealy at yahoo.com or uh, connect me on LinkedIn. That's my only social media. Uh, I'm just Noah Healy on LinkedIn. Uh, there's, there's patent information you can find. There's a white paper you can download and read if you're interested and there's some video that's like up on youtube and on my site that explains what i'm up to uh and yeah uh we're we're kind of living in the war games world so let's let's get together and build a society that's that's robust enough to cope with it awesome thank you so much Dawa. this was a fantastic conversation thanks for having me here heidi i had a lot of fun Reality check. The science of fiction.